to Matthew. Well, no, let's start in Micah. Micah chapter 7. Let's have an Old Testament reading tonight, and then our Matthew text. Micah 7, verses 5 through 8. Hear the prophet in these words captures the care that must be taken even in the covenant community when many are opposed to the Christ of God. Let us pray and then read. Most gracious God and Father, we ask for your help tonight. Help us through your Holy Spirit By the merits of your dear Son, give us the ears that belong to the children of God, ears that recognize the voice of our Master, Jesus Christ, hearts that recognize and believe the authority of the Word of God here in these scriptures. And Father, we pray for wills that are pliable, soft, easily bent to believe what we must believe to honor you, to do what we must do to honor you. Oh, Lord, give us these gifts. We cannot find them in the hands of men. They must come from above, from the man who is from above. Please, Lord, grant us what your Son has purchased for us. In his name we pray, amen. Micah 7, beginning at verse 5. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, and the daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. Now turn with me to Matthew chapter 10. We continue in Matthew chapter 10, which is a lengthy discourse by our Lord where he is setting the hearts and minds of his disciples on that which is right and true about the conflict they will experience by joining him in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Satan will be waging war against the kingdom of Jesus Christ until the end of the age. And we continue in these lessons from our Lord Jesus, beginning tonight at verse 34, reading through verse 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, 
and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is God's word. In our passage tonight, our Lord Jesus comes to fortify his church against some of the most common miscalculations, mistakes, misunderstandings that can take root in our thinking as we go and build a glorious castle of expectations in our head about what following Christ will bring to our natural family relations. Jesus has come to stop us from thinking one way and urge us to start thinking a different way. He says, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. We are not thinking right if we think Jesus has come to thrust peace on the earth in all the places where we most want peace. Where do we most want peace? I want it most at home, among our family members. We most want peace between husband and wife, between father and son, between mother and daughter. We desire peace so much in these relationships, we might start thinking that our faithfulness to Christ will bring this peace about. But Jesus says, do not think that. Yes, Jesus gets to tell you how to think. Do not think, he says, that he has come into the world to establish an earthly peace among all the relationships where we most desire that peace. Now, if we look closer at verse 34, for a few more seconds, we find something quite interesting. Jesus uses a strong word in the Greek to deny that his agenda is peace on earth. I have not come to bring peace to the earth. That is quite literally in the Greek. I have not come to thrust peace on the earth. Or I have not come to throw peace on the earth. It's a more aggressive term that he's denying. Now, it's very tempting for me to let my mind go scattery and start talking about how this text has something to say to post-millennialists, but I will let them find that on their own tonight. Our Lord is saying that his campaign in the world is not to quickly nor to widely spread peace and enforce it. That is not his campaign. Do not think that is his campaign. Are you thinking that it is? Stop it. He just told you to. Think instead 
that he has come to bring conflict to the earth. Conflict to a certain conflict, excuse me, of a certain kind and conflict by a certain method. This is what he means by saying a sword. He does not mean a literal sword of steel, but he does mean literal conflict. He does mean literal suffering, especially in the relationships where you think you should have the least suffering. What did the old man Simeon say to the Virgin Mary about her baby boy? He said, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also. He said those words as those old eyes looked on the face of that young mother. A sword will pierce your soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So this is how you should think. It is not the purpose of Jesus Christ in this age to bring peace to all our relationships. In fact, it is his purpose to bring a productive conflict into many of our relationships, especially the ones we spend most of our time in, the ones we have most of our obligations to, our family relationships. But before we look at those in verses 35 and 36, I want to make one major observation that comes actually from the totality of our Lord's teaching about peace. King Jesus is the Prince of Peace. For him, conflict is not a virtue in and of itself. He will not be disappointed with you if everyone in your immediate family are godly Christian believers. He won't come and stand at your door and say, way too much peace in Christ in this house. Conflict is not a virtue in and of itself. Jesus does have a campaign of peace, but it is peace with heaven through the message of salvation, through the mediator of salvation, through the merit of salvation, his obedience and blood. On the night he was born in Bethlehem, angels appeared in the night sky singing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased, Luke 2.14. This is the peace between sinners and God through the mediation of Christ. That's what they were singing about. Even in our current chapter, chapter 10 of Matthew, the disciples are sent out to the cities of Israel to offer peace. Verse 13, offer peace from house to house, the text says. And we should remember that Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, at the very beginning, he said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, Matthew 5, 9. So Jesus does have an agenda of peace. But the peace he brings is not secured by avoiding conflict. That is a false peace. In fact, Jesus will bring conflict because it will reveal what men really love, who they really love, who they consider worthy. 
Isn't that what Simeon said to Mary? Now on to verse 35 and 36. Here Jesus makes it very clear there will be broken relationships in Christian families. Now that will not fill a conference hall. In fact, Jesus says it is his will that this be so. Not in every single Christian family, but in many. It will be common enough, Jesus is saying, that you should expect to see it. Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, speaking of this passage, says, there is so much conflict among our Christian families, so much strife between believers and unbelievers in these homes. He goes, I don't even need to give you an example for this. You see it everywhere, he said. Jesus is saying that you should expect to see it. Verse 35, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Now those words, I have come, those are formulaic words for Jesus Christ, meaning he uses this expression often in his teaching. Matthew 5.17, do not think I have come to abolish the law. John 5.43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 12.46, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. Not only do These words, I have come, reveal the pre-existence of Jesus Christ in the Godhead. But these words are also a statement of his own personal authority. I have come is like saying, this is what I want done, so I have come to do it. How does that fit into our reading of verse 35? It means many godly Christian believers are in broken relationships with their family members because Christ wills it. In his commentary on Matthew, Bible teacher R.T. France says, The cause of this hostility is not the disciples' own failures or lack of diplomacy. They will be unable to avoid it even as faithful disciples, because its cause is Jesus himself. Beloved, it is a great comfort to know that Christ himself is the cause of your greatest sorrow and not your own foolishness. This is the most painful cut of the Lord's sword. It is a great comfort that it is his cut. Now, Eli, who we've heard a bit about in evening preaching from 1 Samuel, he was the cause of his son's wickedness because he himself was an ungodly man. But the Lord is not talking about Eli's in this passage. He is strengthening his disciples, saying, 
I am the cause, he says. It is a great comfort to know that Christ has called you to serve him with broken relationships, not intact relationships, though you have been called to serve him with those as well. None of your relationships belong to you. They all belong to Jesus Christ. You must, at the end of the day, return them to him and account for them. You can serve him valiantly by grace in broken ones as well as intact ones. And may this news that it is his cause, it may at first come to us as a great blow to our self-righteousness because we so often want to show off our righteousness through our families. But after that useful blow starts to go away and we return to some sense of sobriety, we can go on and find rest in the sovereign will of Christ. Now earlier, we said Jesus has come to bring conflict to the earth, conflict of a certain kind and conflict by a certain method. If you want to read a parallel Old Testament text for all of this, go read again tonight the story of Samson. Samson had some difficulty with his parents and his wives. Not to mention his own brethren from the tribe of Judah who came and bound him and turned him over to the Philistines. It's all there. Now, Jesus has come to bring conflict to the earth, but conflict of a certain kind, conflict by a certain method. And that kind and that method of conflict is very clear now in verse 37. Jesus here says it is wrong and disqualifying to love any family member more than we love Jesus. Do you know how helpful that is for him to say that to us? Because we are always surrounded by by people who say, love your family more than anything. Jesus says, love me more than your family. Such a clear cut contrast. Love me more than you love your playmates, your classmates, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. Love me more than all these. In fact, it is wrong and disqualifying to love any of them more than we love Jesus. Children must not love their parents more than Jesus, he says. And parents must not love their children more than Jesus, he says. To love an earthly companion more than we love Jesus means we are not worthy of Jesus. Because Jesus is worth more than any one of our earthly companions and more than all of them put together. None of our earthly companions can give us eternal life. None of them have suffered for us as he did. None of them have been humiliated for us like he has. Martin Luther, in a different entry in his Table Talk writings, productive reading for me, in a different entry, he discusses very honestly how easily and how sinfully he loves his family more than Christ. I found this one of the best passages I've read yet. Luther, quote, I expect more goodness from Kate, my wife, from Philip Melanchthon, 
and from other friends than from my sweet and blessed Savior, Christ Jesus. And yet, I know for certain that neither Kate nor any other person on earth will or can suffer that for me which he has suffered. Why then should I be afraid of him? This, my foolish weakness, it grieves me very much. Fie, which is a German word that's basically fooey. Fie on our unbelieving hearts, that we should be afraid of this man who is more loving, friendly, gentle, and compassionate toward us than our kindred, our brethren, our sisters, yea, more than our parents themselves are towards their own children. Why can't we love him more than we love our own kin? He has done far more for us and is far more patient and forbearing with us. So here then is a startling discovery about a divine purpose for having an earthly family that we may not have considered. When you survey the love you have for your wife, the love you have for your husband, for your mother, for your dad, when you survey the love you have for your relatives, it should all be a constant sign to you that you should love Christ much more. Who do you love the, more, the most among mortal men? It's a sign to you that you should love Christ even more than that. Beloved, is that perhaps one great reason why you even have Ken? To think about your love for Christ? And the love we mean here, the love he means here in this, in this text is not a warm feeling. Mm-mm. That's the cheap love of the West in its late degradation. This love is not a warm feeling. It is a tangible, costly giving of ourselves love to his cause, to his commands, even if no one will go with us. Getting up and out of your house and leaving everyone behind to go worship God through Jesus Christ is the kind of love he's talking about. Going into your room, turning off the TV when everybody wants it on, and going to quietly pray is the love he's talking about. Getting your Bible out on Sunday afternoon and spending time in God's word is the love he's talking about. I could go on. This is a tangible, costly love, not a warm, fuzzy feeling, but it is a feeling of love that is coming forth from the tangible exercise of paying the cost to love him. The costliness of this love is perfectly stated in verse 38. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. To love Jesus properly in true proportion to his majesty and mercy, is to join him in dying to all the attractive things of this earthly life. To love him properly in true proportion to his beauty and his eternal value will require you to forsake the world like he did. That's what he means by taking up the cross. To love him properly in true proportion to his greatness and generosity toward us sinners will require you to deliberately take up the cross. 
to grab it, to embrace all the sufferings of it, which are the rejections of people of the world and even your own family. Anything less is backing away from the love this Savior is worthy of and finding something among earthlings that is worthy of greater love. Now, John Calvin wisely gives us a caution because Calvin has seen men, men whom I myself have met, who have a perverse love for a passage like this. They use this passage to justify all of their cruelty to their parents, to their children. They use this passage to justify all of their withholding of their money, their time, their commitment from their family. And they have walked things out to the most fine expression and say, well, look at they are slightly off on this doctrine of the end times, so I must separate from them. Calvin says, Jesus does not indeed here enjoin us to lay aside human affections, nor does he forbid us to discharge the duties of relationship, but only desires that all the mutual love which exists among men should be so regulated as to assign the highest rank to, to piety. Calvin then adds, let the husband then love his wife. Let the father love his son. And, on the other hand, let the son love his father, provided that the reverence which is due to Christ be not overpowered by human affection. And just to say it again, because it's the 21st century, this love that Calvin speaks of is not the warm fuzzies. It's the costly giving, securing the good of others at our expense. Well, then there's 39, verse 39. In the words of this verse, Jesus is warning us again. Do you ever notice how blessed you are to be warned? Oh, praise the Lord for the threats and warnings that alarmed my soul. Jesus is warning us again in 39. He says, if we think true life, if we think a life worth living is found in keeping all earthly loves close and at peace, we will lose the very life we thought we were keeping. We will fall under his judgment, Christ's judgment. And in hell, we will not only be separated from God, we will be separated from all those whose love, that we, all those whose love we thought was the most precious love. But then Jesus adds this in verse 39. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever gladly and willingly, by faith, out of sight of the glory and worth of Christ, whoever falls behind in the glory of earthly admirers for his sake, whoever becomes lonely and poor in earthly loves for his sake, Whoever bears reproach from family members and spouses and children for his sake, whoever loses what the worldlings call life for his sake, this sad, suffering, hated, ignored, rejected person will find life forever 
and the one who is life itself. And you would think, that one? That everybody hated? They're one of Jesus' best friends? No, they're not. They're more than his best friend. They are his own family. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, Jesus' family has heard that he is in a house that is packed with people sitting on the floor, and outside the walls of the house are more people packed around it. And they, his family, decide that he has lost his mind. And when his family heard it, they went to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Mark chapter 3, verse 21. A few verses later, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. So this might have been a note. <laughs> this might have been a paper airplane. This might have just been a, a whispered message. They're trying to get in to the house, but they can't get in, so they send a message. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. Jesus is not kin to everyone on the earth. He is kin to whoever does the will of his father. Even if they lose their kin, he keeps them. Let us pray. Our Father, forgive us our sins for how we have listened to your word tonight. Forgive us our sins of being inattentive, of being sleepy, of being unprepared and not having hunger for your word. Father, we thank you that Christ has died and has shed his blood so that our sloth in the heavenly things can even be forgiven us so that you will again return to us again and again and revive and renew us out of our weakness. And Father, we pray that you would stamp upon our heart the truths that we receive tonight, that we would be fortified, we would not be surprised, that we would not think it strange, that we would not think it unexpected, to find that any one of our family members, after receiving even our best efforts of godliness, would still persecute us and reject us and break away from us and be against us. Oh, Father, help us think the way we ought to think and not think the way we often think. Come to us, O oh Lord, we pray. Strengthen us in the worth of Jesus Christ so that we would love him above our earthly dearest. And having loved him, we would be full and satisfied and wander no more. In Jesus' name, amen.